everyone. Welcome to this episode of Mumble Road. Today, we're looking at schools and school communities. Today's discussion will focus on the hugely daunting transition from preschool to kindergarten, specifically for those parents who are sending a child with a disability to school for the first time. Joining us is Principal Jono. He is the principal of a school that caters for over 300 students. Jono's school is doing amazing things for children with disabilities, including the littlies who are embarking on their transition to big school. I was able to get the answers to many of the questions that parents of preschool age children have. How do you start the transition process? How do you communicate with the school? How can parents make this transition easier for their child? How do some teachers make this very complex job look so effortless? And finally, how can schools do more to support families, particularly those with a child with a disability? Firstly, let's get to know a bit more about Jono. I didn't realise I wanted to be a teacher until after school. I was actually a 20-year-old in a combi van going around Australia on my own and some random backpacker dude up in the far north Queensland said to me, you know, you'd be a great teacher. And I reflected on that for the rest of the trip. And when I got back to Sydney, I decided, right, that's what I'm going to do. I couldn't wait to get in the classroom on my own. And when I did, oh my goodness, <laughs> what an eye-opener that was. I started in Granville in Sydney, very multicultural, with um, Arabic and Turkish people there. I started on a prac in year six, term four. And I remember crying in the car on the way home because these kids were so tough and they were giving me such a hard time. And I was very naive and I was doing poetry appreciation lessons at uh, 2.15 in the afternoon when the kids were totally tuned out. Yes, I learnt very quickly what the real world was like. And I'd come from a privileged background too. I grew up in the North Shore of Sydney. Uh, to meet the real people was um, very different. I absolutely loved it and realised that's where I needed to be. And then. Bit by bit, as I got um, more knowledgeable, uh, moved from there to Villawood East. Uh, that was probably the first time I'd met students with really strong work ethic. And a lot of those families had just come off the boat and you could see that uh, it wasn't going to be long before that. That was just a skipping stone for them. They were going to move their way up through society through hard work and dedication. Just sort of um, leapt from there. I had that opportunity to go to Lord Howe Island then. Uh, so I did a couple of years there. And then realised that, in fact, I love community. And um, that little community of Lord Howe Island with 300 people on a rock in the middle of the Tasman Sea made me realise that was much nicer and better fit for me than the big city. So that's when we moved up to the Hunter. And uh, I've been the Hunter ever since, so for the last 20 years or so. Jono, you are a leader of a school now. Why... Did you choose to rise to the top of your profession within the school environment? Well, I've been teaching probably 30 years now, and there are certain points in your career when you feel you can offer more. There's pros and cons because as you have influence on more people, and as a principal, it's not just the kids you have the influence on, it's the staff and the families of the children too, so the whole community. Um, but each time you do so, you are removed a little bit more from the actual day-to-day -day teaching in the classroom with the kids. While you have a greater influence, you have less connectivity with the, just seeing those beautiful moments of the kids' growth throughout the year. And so that's the bit you have to give up on, which is unfortunate. Yes, it's a bit of both. very tough job to yep. decide to do that path. 
you do an incredible job. You lead a school that caters for a very diverse range of learners. However, it does go under the title that's common to people called a mainstream school. Your professional role is incredibly broad as a result of this. Can you give the listeners a brief overview of the of the different learners that your school caters for and the knowledge and the skills that you as a principal need to have to engage those students within your school? Uh, yeah. Wow. Well, that's a it's big a, question. <laughs> it is a big question, Jono. I know you can answer it, though. Right. You're the man for the job. Well, I'll, uh, I'll break it down into its parts. Yes. Firstly, let me give you an idea of the setting of the school. So um, I've got a school of 300 kids. Um, We have 13 mainstream classes from kindergarten to year six, and we have three support classes. Um, And we call that the support unit, the unit of three classes. And we have had that unit established in our school for decades. Um, Now, support classes at present are popping up everywhere. In fact, I heard just the other day that they're proposing an, a new 90 classes across the Hunter in the next handful of years. Wow. So they're growing exponentially because we're seeing so many new diagnoses and um, people coming forward with the disability. So we're needing to um, accommodate these students. We've been established for a long time, which has been terrific. So we have staff that have um, a long term in our school and very, very good at their craft of looking after these students with disabilities. So I've got to say, when I got there, I'd never been in a school with a support unit before. So I, there was an awful lot of learning for me when yes. I first arrived. And I took the lead of the support staff a fair bit and um, really learnt a lot from them. And I'd go to colleague principals who also had support units as well and would ask them about things. Um, what we're finding these days, though, is that there are uh, students with disabilities everywhere. They're not necessarily just in the support classes. Um, they, we have a huge number of students with disabilities in our mainstream classes as well and also need to be catering for them. Um, how do we do that? We're always doing professional learning. Um, we're learning an awful lot about uh, the different diagnoses because they, they seem to keep changing as well. Uh, there was the ADD and then became the ADHD and then it became ODD and then it, it, um, you know, it just goes on and on. Yes. This year, I heard of a brand new diagnosis I've never heard before in my life. Just trying to keep up with the medical profession of what these new diagnoses are and what that means for educators and how we need to cater for that child in the support setting or the, or the education setting is really complex. And we're learning too more and more about trauma-informed practice and how the effects of trauma can look like other diagnoses. You know, where we might be thinking a child has some autistic tendencies or some ADHD or whatever, it might in fact be um, trauma-related. Our understanding of dealing with these students just gets better and better. But in saying that, every day has its absolutely wonderful moments where, you know, you're seeing growth in these kids, um, but every day presents challenges too because what might work on the last three days doesn't work today and we've got to keep reflecting on our practices and changing them up. But the success comes, I think, and two things, that you have a, a really dynamic team around you and you trust in their abilities and you will push forward as a team. And then the second one is the relationships with the kids and their families. And as I said, we've got those great moments. We've also got those difficult moments. And if you can build those relationships with the families and the kids and have 
be depositing into those emotional bank accounts, celebrate the great times. Well, when there is a difficult time, we can navigate it together and have that trust between home and school that um, we're doing the best for our kids. Excellent. Wow. Jono, just listening to that, and I'm sure the listeners who tune into this podcast will feel the same, that gives us a little bit of an insight into the capabilities of your role. Your professional practice every day bans from interpreting medical diagnoses right through from being a pillar of the community and a real sounding board for families and staff members. I am just actually in awe of you right now. (laughs) What a terrific job that you do. The majority of the listeners and the families that I deal personally with have a link to somebody with additional needs. You have been in the industry for 30 years. Could you just give us a couple of sentences about what you've seen in the realm of inclusion in your professional practice? Yeah, I'm seeing that we are getting better and better at it as the years go on. There's a greater understanding amongst the whole community as the importance of inclusivity. There needs to be a distinguishment between what inclusivity is. It's about the full, the full coming together of kids with disabilities with the main population. Integration is a bit different. It's being having children with disabilities within a mainstream setting, which is pretty much what it, the way our school is, has been set up. And those kids within our support classes, they come, they integrate. So they come out to the playground and join the rest of the school population. They're at our assemblies, but they are within, they, they stick within their own classes for the majority of the day. Yes. If a child shows some adeptness at a certain subject, they might then go and visit a mainstream class for that lesson and so on. But on the whole, they're grouped together. Okay. That's seen more as integration, whereas inclusivity B, where I talked about earlier, where you've got kids with disabilities in the mainstream classes, working with uh, the kids with full ability all day long. That's why I hinted earlier about where I see us going in the future. A couple of years ago, I did an exchange with a Canadian principal from Vancouver, and uh, that involved her coming over here for 10 days, and then I went over there and stayed there for 10 days. When she walked into my school and saw the support classes as distinct from mainstream, she said, oh, you're still doing this, are you? And I looked at her and said, What's, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, yeah, we went down that road and we found that what was going on was um, the classes were created exponentially. Does that sound familiar? And it just got out of hand and it's silly. So we abandoned that idea and we went back to full inclusion so that all students, whether disabled or not, learn together in schools and the appropriate supports are provided. So if you know, you've got um, a severe disability, you've got lots of personnel there. Mild disability, you, you just have accommodations and so on. And went into their schools and had a look around and they seemed to be a genuine inclusivity going on, which was terrific. So I'm wondering if maybe down the track, New South Wales or Australian schools systems might, might see that as the future. Uh, in saying that, though, what we have currently is what we have. What we do have at present, we do well. Hugely proud of the public education system because they will never say no to providing the, the properties and the, the access for students who need it. If we know that a child is coming to our school and we know that they need certain, certain properties, let's say, you know, we need a new ramp in the school, we need handrails on the stairwells or whatever it might be, 
the Department of Education will fork out the money to make sure those facilities are available. And if we've got enough notice, they'll be ready on day one when that child arrives. And we're talking uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases to get that school prepared for that child, which is um, a real testament to ensuring that the school system caters for the needs of the, the students. It's, yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. So that's the properties. And then, of course, um, you know, if we need the personnel, we have ways of making sure that happens as well, to a point. Sometimes, you know, we have the capability. Sometimes the child's needs exceeds the capability of one setting, but then that goes to a panel and we look at other settings that does cater for that child. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And it is incredible to hear that insight into how the school does prepare for children with additional needs. I am a parent of a child with a disability and some mornings I am incredibly stressed just getting my own child to their schooling setting. I I feel overwhelmed. Their siblings might not have been dressed in time and we arrive at the school gate and quite bluster. I and many, many other families hand our children over to you in our state of stress sometimes. You as a principal and your amazing staff receive them and and set our mind at ease. When you see a parent's face like mine sometimes <laughs> who had a morning like I've had many of them, how do you respond in a way to give them that sense of ease when you know you can evidently see that they've had a tricky morning? Talk us through what goes through your mind in the transitioning the child from the parent into your school community. We understand. As most most teachers are also parents themselves. We're, <laughs> yeah. We've all been there. We've all had those mornings. We understand completely. I guess the first thing is there are no judgments. We get it. So then what I think we are best at offering is routine and calm and comfort. And we also come from a team approach as well so that where you, I don't know, dad, dad might be already off at work and you're trying to do it on your own. In the mornings, um, when you get to school, it's often not just the one staff member but a team. So um, we can work together to uh, ensure that that child transitions across to the school day in a calm environment where uh, we, the staff can support each other to make sure that calmness and that routine starts from the outset. Excellent. Yeah. So we have just briefly touched on being in a, in a stressful state sometimes, and I'm talking about my own personal experience here. Mm. Your professional practice and you lead a team of staff, you would have stressful days and stressful weeks. How do you defrag or how do you come back from a day that's been particularly stressful or a week that's been particularly stressful and and review or um, go over your practice in a way that can keep your personal stress under control and also you need to be firing on a four, all fours to support your staff. So can you just talk us through a little bit of the stress management process that you go through? Yeah, sure. It's funny you say we've got to be firing on all four cylinders. I, I used to work for a principal who would come in on some days and say, oh, Jono, I'm only firing on 11 cylinders today. Uh, look, so are you presuming that you're a 12-cylinder man? Yeah. You know? You've got the big engine, have you? You're absolutely right there. It is a stressful job. You, you get hit from so many different angles. You've got the kids, the staff, the parents. You've got all the expectations from the department coming down on you. You've got the community expectations. Yeah, the hits just keep coming. Uh, you think everything's going smoothly and 
they should never presume that because the next <laughs> second um, something blows up and, and you're at it again. I think you've, the way I deal with it is that I'm very conscious of what I have an influence over and what I don't. So I'm always reflecting on what's my sphere of influence? How can I affect this situation? How can I deal with this to a point and then forget about the rest? The rest just will happen anyway. There's been a real push uh, for all teachers, principals lately to make sure that you're looking after your own well-being as a priority. And they always use that analogy of when you're on the plane and the, um, the air socket things come down and you're supposed to uh, face mask on your own face first before you assist the people around you. I talk about that a lot with the well-being as well in schools. I rely on coming home and um, debriefing with my wife is very good. Um, chocolate and alcohol. Excellent. Of course. <laughs> Just going out with friends is very important too, making sure you uh, exercise and sleep, you know, all the usuals. Yeah, well, that's really great. I'm very conscious of the, the well-being aspect of the position that you have because of the responsibility that you have to so many people. I am just going to shift a little bit of a gear here, particularly at this time of the year, it's term three. A lot of the people that I deal personally with, parents who have children who will be transitioning into kindergarten next year in the coming year, and they often have additional needs. They're not yet in a schooling environment. They've not had exposure to principals and schools and routines. Could you just give us a little bit of an insight or some advice for those parents of children who may of, of children who may have additional needs? How would you offer them advice to equip them with that transition into their schooling life? I think the key is communication. If your child is already at some sort of early childhood education centre, then the staff there will know the child very well. Schools talk to parents, but they also talk to the directors and the staff at these early childcare centres um, to get a really good insight into the profile of the children coming forward into kinder. A lot of schools also have great transition programs now. They might have um, orientation sessions, maybe just three or four or five of those in term four. But a lot of schools now also um, are doing extra transition programs such as uh, well, our school, for instance, is doing throughout term three doing like a play group um, every Friday. Uh, so that gives an additional chance to really get to know the students. Parents are there while the students are there for an hour, an hour and a half each time. And so it gives you a great ability to then talk to the staff of the school and let them know what your concerns and anxieties and so on are. And although this is a new experience for you as a parent, moving your child into the school environment, you've got to remember the, these staff at school have done this year after year after year, and although they have never quite met a unique person like your own child, they will have dealt with children like your child before and, and know and feel confident about how to handle them. They, I think most teachers get into teaching because they care about others, and I think you'll be um, looking hard to find a teacher at a school that doesn't care about the children coming in and they will listen intently, they'll listen to what your concerns are, and they will um, do their utmost to put you at ease. Because I think sometimes a lot of the anxiety that comes from a child staying in school is not from the child themselves, but from the parent. Often the kids on day one, they will quite happily take the hand of the child next to them and walk in two lines down to the classroom. 
while the parents are there sobbing and <laughs> crying uh, at the assembly yep, area. That was me. Yes. Yep. <laughs> uh, those anxieties should be allayed knowing that the staff will do their utmost to look after your child. Yeah, just go and get that coffee. Yes. Uh-huh. And relax. Look, if you have any concerns in those uh, days leading up to school or the days after school starts, just keep talking to the staff. It's that ongoing, clear and transparent communication that will soon bring all those fears and anxieties to rest. Excellent. You just touched on the program that your school offers, that play group. Mm. And just as, from a parent's perspective, this is amazing. So, again, you've, you've spoken to us about what your school offers and you as a, as a leader. And then there's another, this program that's run presumably by staff at your school in addition to the teaching staff or is this, is it the kindy teachers that run this program or are they, do you bring extra staff in? Because just from my perspective, that is an incredibly valuable uh, experience and, again, testament to the New South Wales Department of Education and your school particularly for putting this initiative together. Who runs that play group? It is the school staff. That's amazing. It's the school staff. So wow. we, we, we might collapse support programs at, at that point. Um, so we have our class teachers, but we, we have a suite of specialist teachers too who go in to classrooms to support um, you know, remedial reading and, and things like that. So uh, we will utilise those, those um, peripheral staff in order to then do these programs. Wow. Uh, we'll also get kinder teachers off class to come in and visit during these transition programs as well. So, yes, it, it keeps us busy. It keeps us on our toes, but it's a wonderful program to, to be able to offer. So how do you get to that point? You have a four- or five-year-old who you know will require additional supports within their learning environment. You'd really like them to start kindergarten at their local school. When and how do you start communicating with the school? Who do you talk to? If you have a child with disability coming in and you feel that they're not suitable for the mainstream setting and you want to get them into a support class from the get-go, at the beginning of kindergarten, there's a process. And this is one that uh, some parents may not know about. You see, as the principal of my school, I'm responsible for the enrolments of all the kids that go into the mainstream classes, but I'm not responsible for the placements of children going into the support classes. That is done by a panel, a district office. And that process involves something called an access request, which is a, a digital document that we have to write up, giving the profile of the child, and then that's submitted to district office. And there, uh, twice a term, a panel looks at all those applications and looks at how many vacancies there are in the classes at my school and the surrounding schools and then places those students accordingly um, on the basis of need. Unfortunately, there might sometimes be 10 applications but only five vacancies. And so uh, an application may have to go to a number of panels before the child gets a placement. And um, the parent and the principal have no idea where that child may end up. They might end up at a local school, but there may be no vacancies, so they have to go to a neighbouring school. So that's how that works. Now, in order to get an access request written for a a child, a four-year-old who isn't yet at school, you need to contact your zoned school and talk to them about the, the needs of your child and the setting that you would like them in and then that school can start writing the access request on your behalf and submitting that that's really great that's really that's a really good clear 
pathway for those parents who are in that position yes. to know what to do. Um, again, you did say to contact the zone school, so that's really a good first step. So they're the, the public school that the ch- that their home is zoned into. Yes. Great advice. You can go to the department website to find out which school is your zone school. If not, just ring the local school and ask. They'll be able to tell you very quickly. Excellent. And it's also uh, the parent's choice as to what setting you want your child in. You know, we've had examples. I've had a, a, a lovely girl who with severe cerebral palsy wheelchair-bound, needed to be changed. We had to get her in slings and all sorts of things. Now, her parents were adamant that they wanted her in a mainstream classroom, and so that's what we did. That worked really well, worked really well. There are really three tiers. There's the mainstream, there's support classes within a mainstream school, and then there is a support school. Nearest one to us in the Maitland area would be Hunter River Community School. Students with perhaps more severe disabilities would go to a school that setting. So you've got your three tiers, but I just want to reiterate that it is the parent's choice. That's great. That's a really great point to to end on with that that, um, topic. Thank you for that description. That's excellent. Hmm. On because I feel like I've got you here and you're such a wealth of knowledge, we've spoken about the parent perspective. There are some terrific and passionate teachers out there You've had a wealth of experience within the, in the education industry. For some newer teachers or some teachers that are within the, the industry and, and looking for some advice or some, some words of wisdom, what are those words of wisdom or, or advice or tips for your fellow teachers within the education industry? As in? Another big one. <laughs> <laughs> Buy some chocolate. Yes. Oh, look, I think the reason a teacher goes into teaching is because of their passion their passion for the education of children and just getting each child to reach their potential. And uh, there is nothing more delightful for a teacher than, you know, that little note or that little comment that they make or, uh, you know, that you taught them the previous year and they come back and they just tell you how much they, they loved having you as a teacher the previous year. There's, there's no greater reward. There are so many other stresses, the workload and um, all the, the other bits and pieces go with it, but it's just those little moments like that that, um, that uh, overbalance, I guess, the, the positives Excellent. against the negatives. So um, you just got to keep that passion and realise the difference you make. Absolutely. Wow. Well, Jono, I know you as a personal friend and I admire you because of your professional capacity and what you do within your school and your community. Uh, I've known you for many years and I've always respected your work and your dedication to your role. I feel so lucky to have had this interview with you today. I really want to thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Emily. And um, I really appreciate um, what you're doing for the families of students with disabilities as well. Thank you. And I think we'll go out and buy each other some chocolate now. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome alcohol. Oh, yeah. That's it for this episode, a closer look at the transition from preschool to kindergarten. I'm Emily Bache, developmental educator, teacher and mum to three beautiful children, one who is on the autism spectrum. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook and the web. Just search Mummel Road. We're all here to help each other. And remember, every road starts with small steps. Until next time, bye. Bye.